Always Evolving is brought to you by Cast Centers, which is a company and organization very close to me. I founded Cast Centers over 17 years ago. We provide the best evidence-based practices for therapy, mental health, addiction, Anytime you're struggling or you have a loved one who is struggling, make sure you go to our website at www.castcenters.com, C-A-S-T, centers.com. Give us a call. We're here to help. We'll help you with a free assessment, and let's get your mental health on track. Back at Always Evolving, and uh, thank you for the messages and texting me at 310-984-1858. I read a lot of your text messages, and recently I've received many that have to do with you loving someone or caring about someone and feeling that or thinking they need help, that their lives are going downhill, and you don't know what to do. And it's scary. It's frustrating. It's one of those things that really teaches us that we can't control other human beings. We see them kind of ending up almost in a car crash of sorts. But when we try to approach the person, they may be resistant. So what gives me the ability to talk about this, and I feel very confident about this, is For about 10 years of my career, I spent uh, my time and energy as an interventionist. And what an interventionist is, you may have seen the show Intervention, we are hired to help someone or help a family or a company help someone who is either addicted to drugs or alcohol, or maybe they have a very bad depression sex addiction, gambling, anything that's really leading to a life that is going to pretty soon be very dark and it seems like the person's bottom just keeps going lower and lower because it's it's a lie that people have to hit bottom before they get well. There's always a lower point and sometimes unfortunately that lower point is death. And so What we try to do is, and what I try to do is raise the bottom. How can you raise the bottom of someone who is struggling? So if you have someone in your life, it could be a spouse, it could be a friend, it could be a loved one, it may be that you wish they changed for the better, but keep in mind that you have to check your own ego, especially if you're in a relationship with someone, because what you may perceive as them being better at may actually be your own issue. So when I talk about helping people change and what I'm gonna teach you today, this is for people who are on a road to a total disaster. This is where it's life or death. You can use some of these tools, but I really want you to be cautious of using these tools because it can cause you a bit of challenges unless you execute it properly. So. I started doing interventions at 24 years old, and the first intervention I ever did, uh, the family got their money back. I was working for a company called Addiction Intervention Resources, and my first gig, I was living with my mom, and 
a big Hollywood family uh, needed to help their family member. And so what we did is we first did a pre-intervention, which is a gathering of all the friends and family and loved ones. And they meet me. I, at the time for this company, had to wear a suit. I could not afford a suit, so I wore my dad's suit, which he probably bought at Big and Tall because that seemed to be the only place that my family would shop. My dad was 6'7", my brother 6'8", uh, my mom was 5'11". She says she shrunk a few inches because of some surgeries. My sister's about six foot. And so I'm wearing this oversized suit, and this company I had to recite basically their script in terms of how to do an intervention and what we would do. And long story short, I wasn't confident. I was young and I probably took me about 20 interventions before I started to feel really comfortable. And that, you know, when you're doing something with high stakes, it takes a lot of time. Sometimes you can get lucky, but it's not until somebody, I mean, I've, I've been through a lot of dangerous interventions. Uh, I've been all over the world doing them. And at a certain point, you get really comfortable with it. But at the beginning, it is very stressful. I think I was the heaviest I've ever been in my life at that point. So there's two things that motivate people to change. Two things when I say there's big change. One is pain. So if you look at your life, if you were to make a big change in your life, uh, it may be that you've gone through emotional pain or physical pain spiritual pain. You know, for me, I've always, uh, when I've made big changes in my life, pain is a huge motivator for me. It is a motivator that I don't want to, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired and I have to change my life. Now, if you're dealing with someone who has addiction issues, they often are the last ones to believe they have a problem. So everyone around them believes they have a problem. They think that you're just maybe crazy or out of touch or they have it under control. So sometimes it's very difficult unless you're working with certain type of drug addicts. So I find that working with opiate addicts, you know, that's people who take maybe heroin or um, Norcos or Vicodin, they were a bit easier to get to go into treatment because they were already in pain. They were taking these pills to numb their physical pain or their emotional pain. The most difficult people to get into treatment were those that were alcoholics, crystal meth addicts, crack addicts, and that was kind of the big, between the two, one, the lower energy folks were easier. The interesting thing is the alcoholic, um, usually they, sh they show in studies, I remember in school, it takes about 20 to 25 years before the typical alcoholic seeks some sort of help. And usually it's directly related to consequences. It's not directly related to emotional pain, physical pain, spiritual pain. It's usually related to consequences. Consequences of a DUI, maybe it's losing a relationship, could be losing a job, engaging in some behavior that there's going to be a consequence. And those are the two motivators. So if you look at someone in your life who's struggling, usually those two areas have not become difficult enough. 
Now on the outside, you're looking at it and you're thinking, you're a mess. Like your life is so unmanageable. How could you not be wanting to make changes? But for that person, their own tolerance towards that emotional pain or their own denial or their own avoidance keeps them doing what they're doing. So when an intervention takes place, you get together the people that love that person the most. So imagine if I was to do an intervention on you for some behavior in your life, right? Let's say uh, it could be anything you're wanting to change. And if you pictured having people in the room who were gathered there, who love you more than anyone, who you know love you, who you know care about you, And some of these people, maybe you haven't even seen them in several years, but whenever you see them, you listen. It's like you light up because you love that person so much. Could be a distant relative. And these people get together and they talk to you about how much they love and care for you. They have an honest conversation with you about how they've seen that behavior affect your life, how it's affecting their life, and that they want you to get help. Now, When you're dealing with someone who's struggling with an addiction issue, usually they aren't that receptive. They'll usually be receptive to some people in the room, but there's a lot of resentments maybe towards mom or dad, maybe towards a sibling. So we really vet and figure out who is going to be the best group of people to be at this intervention. You know, who is that we call my identified patients or identified clients? Who do they have resistance towards? What are going to be all the reasons and excuses for why they're going to say they're not willing to go to treatment? They're not willing to change their behavior. They're not willing to get help. So I'm giving you the extreme version because after the intervention, I would fly with them to treatment. We would go immediately to the airport within three hours. We would have a bag packed and they'd start their journey of recovery from whatever it is they were struggling with. Now, not everyone needs to go away to treatment, and it's why at CAS centers we have an outpatient. No research today is suggesting that inpatient has higher efficacy, long-term sobriety, and overall a better holistic lifestyle than outpatient. It's also why insurance companies typically are willing to pay for outpatient and not pay for inpatient because there's no research today that suggests that inpatient's that much better. Now, you do need to go in somewhere if you need to detox, if you need to get off certain medications, if you need to get your mood stabilized. But in terms of living life on life's terms, it is very easy to stay sober when you're in a residential program because unless someone sneaks it in, there's no alcohol or drugs. Uh, There's 24-7 staff. But it doesn't really take you through life and life's triggers, life's problems. And people get really frustrated because they'll go through what we call the, the washing machine of treatment. They'll just bounce from one treatment center to another, and then they'll blame the treatment center. But really, it's about the person having the honesty to do what it takes, the openness and the willingness. You know. So anyway, I, I'm kind of all over the place with this because it's, there's so many different circumstances that can happen. But One of the most important things is if you love someone, 
Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morph. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. Have the right solution in place. So the first step is figure out a solution. So if you have a loved one, let's say, that is struggling and you want them, you think they need to get assessed by a doctor or a therapist, what you want to do is ahead of time, call a doctor or therapist, make sure they're taking on new patients or that they take the insurance of your loved one. And then you want to make sure that they're a fit, that it sounds like this could be a good match. So by the time you have that conversation with that person you care about, there's already a solution in place. Because if you just sit down with someone and say, hey, you have a drinking problem, you need to stop. The person's not doesn't have the tools. Um, maybe in that moment, they have a moment of clarity, but that moment passes and the alcoholic mind will take over really soon. You can go with them to that appointment. So getting assessed is great especially when you don't know specifically what the problem is. So the first step is find a solution that works for them. The second step is to what lengths or what extreme conversation needs to take place. And what I mean by that is, does the conversation need to take place with you and that person? Or should you get some other friends together? Should you get other family members together? But if you decide to do it without a professional, you have to check your ego at the door, and I would err on someone being less likely to listen to you than more likely to listen to you. So be mindful because you don't want to get into an argument when you're trying to help someone because then they just shut down. It would be like if I was helping you and you and I are arguing, you're going to be like, F off, Coach Mike. I don't want to listen to you. I don't trust you. So first step, figure out a solution, whatever it may be. Second step is figure out what type of conversation needs to take place. Do you do it alone or do you have another person join you? It could be a pastor. It could be anyone. But I do think if you're dealing with someone who has mental health issues, bringing someone with you is very smart, especially if you have a lot of emotion entangled in it. So by having another person there, it helps neutralize a little bit and also Two is better than one if you're both on the same page. Now, when you sit down with someone to have a conversation about their problem, you first want to ask them, hey, I want to talk to you about something um, that I've been concerned about, haven't known really how to discuss it with you. Are you open to a discussion? And usually the person will say, well, what is it you want to talk to me about? Well, I'd like to talk to you, but I'd like you just to listen that, you know, I've had some concerns about your depression or I've had some concerns because I know you're not happy. I'm happy. John, like, I know when you're not happy, you put on a lot of weight. And I'm not saying this to you because that you need to be some really fit man, but I know you're carrying a lot of stress right now, right? Yes, I'm carrying a lot of stress. Thank you for pointing out, Mike, that I'm overweight. Well, 
will you listen to me? Because I just, I really love you and I care about you and I want to help you. I'm still starting to talk about the issue. We're not even on the depression yet. We're on the exterior things that I know the person would be receptive to going, yeah, I agree. I put on 50 pounds during COVID. I'm not happy about it. Or I know that I'm not in a good place. And sometimes it's really helpful not to just go directly at, hey, you have an alcohol and drug problem. Because let the psychiatrist or psychologist or doctor who assesses them, who you've spoken to, who you've given information to, give the recommendations after the assessment. So, and part of what's even needed if someone was going to go away to treatment or was going to get therapy or why insurance is going to cover it is they're going to need assessments anyways. So this sets the stage regardless if that person decides to get help that week or a year from now, depending if they have the same health insurance policy. And you, you guys know, I mean, you know, it, the health insurance policies seem to change every year and all of a sudden they'll cover this, they won't cover this. So uh, within a few months, I would say. <laughs> so you sit down with them, you have the conversation, you give them the resource. You say, hey, I made this call. I think this would be great. Now, if they don't want to do it, you can make some decisions. One decision you can make is, I'm going to wait. I planted a seed. My whole goal with this is I couldn't carry the weight and shame and guilt if something bad were to happen. So I had the conversation. I have the resource. And I'm going to let them know if you ever do want help with this, know that you can always call me and I love you. That's one route. Another route is communicating to the person what you are or aren't willing to do if they decide not to get help. So if somebody is affecting you that negatively, it could be that you are choosing to get a divorce. It could be that you're not going to show up at family functions. It could be that you're not going to have them in your will. It could be that you're not going to have them over to your house because you know that they're driving under the influence, that you're setting some boundaries for yourself. It's not so much about, let me set these boundaries so that that person goes to treatment. It's setting boundaries so that you're not enabling them. So enabling someone would be keeping your mouth shut and doing nothing and acting like everything's okay, even when it's not. And this is extremely common when someone has a loved one who's an alcoholic or a drug addict or have a loved one that they have, say, are very sensitive. You know, you ever have a family member that's very sensitive where you can't really say anything and you have to walk on eggshells. But really what that person has done is set up something that's no different than someone who rages. People don't want to have that conversation because you don't want to deal with the consequences of their confrontation or how they're going to treat you afterwards. So by not enabling, you're taking care of yourself, but it doesn't mean that your life the next day is going to be that much better. It's still going to be difficult. You still want to set up your own resources for yourself. You want to be able to have your own support system. But you talk to them about the problem that you're seeing. You can talk to them about how it's affecting your life. And if they just don't decide to do anything about it, 
you can decide that day to say, hey, look, this is what I'm not willing to do if you don't decide to get assessed. Like, I'm not going to be friends with you anymore. I've had this conversation with people who've relapsed and don't want to be sober is, you know, if you decide to get sober, I'm here. I'm, I'll have your back. You can lean on me whenever you want. If you don't want to be sober, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm not someone that hangs out with people who do heavy drugs. And so if you decide to do that, then you can't have me in your life because that's not a part of my lifestyle. So the first step, again, I'm going to go over it. Solution. Figure out what's a solution you could put in place for that person. And it does save lives. And some of you who follow what I'm suggesting today will help that person you care about. The second step is that you want to figure out what is going to be their motivator. Is it going to be pain? Is it going to be consequences? Is it going to be speaking to love in their heart? Is it going to be um, letting them know you're going to tell mom or dad unless they change their behavior. What are the things that are going to get them motivated to change? Then it's figuring out what are you going to do if they decide to do this? And what are you going to do if they decide not to? And you should not feel guilty one bit if you decide you don't want to have someone in your life because they are unwilling to change a negative behavior that not only hurts them, but also hurts you. If you're being hurt by their behavior, there is nothing wrong with communicating, hey, look, this behavior is affecting my life. When you decide to change it, I'm here, I'll support you, I love you. But if you don't, I can't be around right now. And that person may be upset, but you planted a seed. And I can tell you, as someone in recovery, it's refreshing. It's actually refreshing because now I know, okay, if I ever want to get sober, I can call Pam. Everyone else, they don't really care, but Pam, Pam cares about me enough that she loves me, but she wants me clean. So hopefully listening to this got your wheels turning a little bit. You can also send me messages uh, if you have any questions. It is helping someone change who's an adolescent is very different than helping someone change who, who's an adult. Same goes with somebody that you're married to versus uh, an ex-spouse. So people do change and often you can be that instigator. You can be that fire that gets someone else to change. All you have to do is have the courage to be honest, get out of ego, set up a solution and let go of the results. And until next time and next week, keep it magical. Love you guys very much and uh, have a great week.